0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Happiness Journey with Dr. Dan podcast, where every journey is worth living. My name is Dr. Dan, and I'm your host for today's episode. I am a cognitive behavior psychotherapist specializing in anger management issues, both court appointed and private, marriage counseling, dissociative disorders, narcissistic personality disorders, depression, anxiety, dream analysis, and also provide life, business, and retirement coaching support. If you need any assistance, reach out to DMD Counseling and Therapy Services at 301-325-1550 and our website can be found at lifecoachdanamsalike.com. Today, I am very excited to have on our podcast for the last episode of season two, a very special guest of mine, Dr. Sharad Shimassian. Just like every of my past episode, I will leave it up to the guest to properly introduce themselves as no one can do a better job. Doctor, the floor is yours.
1: Thanks for having me, Dr. Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Just a little bit about me. So I'm Dr. Shamasin, like you mentioned. I grew up in Los Angeles and, you know, to immigrant parents and my education and career has taken me in a lot of great directions. And I've for a long time been assisting students with getting into top colleges and and medical schools. That's a specialty and been doing it for nearly two decades now and, and really love helping people on their educational and career journey.
0: Beautiful. Thank you for the intro. So um, you're a doctor in psychology, is that correct, sir? Correct. Yes. I have my PhD in clinical psychology. Beautiful. So what brought you to get into this field, besides helping people, of course?
1: (laughs) Oh, sure. I mean, I just found it fascinating. You know, growing up, I was pre-med, you know, since I can remember, since my dream of playing in the NBA, uh, you know, died, uh, I was like, all right, I got to take my schooling really seriously. And, <laughs> you know, I, I have, uh, you know, my parents are immigrants from Lebanon. And so they were always talking about, you know, becoming a doctor or a dentist or an engineer or something like that. Or and lawyer. Um, yeah, 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 or lawyer <laughs> that I call it the menu, the immigrant menu. Um, and, you know, I always gravitated towards medicine and healthcare. Partly because I was interested in the sciences and anatomy, but also because my older brother wanted to you know be a doctor too, so I was like, that sounds good, you know I look up to him And you know I was going through high school and college and was on that path and had done very well. Um, but I was getting really interested in mental health uh, both clinically and, and research wise, and I grew up with Tourette syndrome since around age eight age nine when I was diagnosed, and so I was always fascinated with the brain and how it works and Um, how it sometimes doesn't work the way we hope it does and, and how to intervene in those kinds of things and proper diagnosis. So my, my career took me to clinical psychology. And, you know, I studied a lot about diagnostics and how to diagnose properly and was doing a lot of work in brain imaging and things like that. And, and, you know, over time, I got more and more interested in entrepreneurship. And, with entrepreneurship i was wondering you know what what is it that i can do of course there's you know the private practice route and all that but i was finding i was helping a lot of students with admissions and the interest was growing and growing and I just found, you know, that that was my my true calling. And it's interesting that a lot of the skills that I studied in school, as far as you know, validating people and you know, holding you know their concerns and making sure to you know motivate them uh, the right way, you know, just really comes up in my day to day work. And it's just been an amazing sort of merging of my interests in education and psychology.
0: Wow, that is fascinating. So, for most people who know anything about Tourette syndrome, um, you know, they, I'm not sure if like in different movies they kind of like not poke fun at it, but you know, sometimes you have a, a quick response of either yelling in the middle of a sentence or kind of reacting of like either uh, screaming or whatever it is. So what, what's your spectrum of Tourette's syndrome, Doc?
1: Yeah, so Tourette's syndrome can look like a bunch of different things. You know, the stereotype is people will curse uncontrollably. Oh. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's actually a pretty rare symptom. Uh, but it's nice, you know. If I curse, I can say, "Well, I have Tourette's," you know. I, I get it, I get a nice <laughs> built-in excuse. No, but there's a lot of misconception around Tourette syndrome, right? And it's essentially characterized by motor and vocal tics that are repetitive, you know, stereotyped, and you know that can be like as simple as a shoulder shrug, shrug or a face grimace. But then on the vocal side, it could be you know a bit of a hum, like a "hm," mm. or you know, in more I guess severe cases, you could have things like you know screaming a word in the middle of a a sentence or when somebody else is speaking and, and, and things like that. So it's actually quite wide and, you know, ticks can be pretty simple. Like I said, like a shoulder shrug, or they can be more complex where you pound your chest and you move your arm out or something like that. and, And there are patterns of behaviors. And I would say, you know, in adolescence, it tends to sort of increase in severity, you know, from childhood to adolescence. And then for most people, when they become adults, it either, you know, smooths out a little bit and, you know, declines in intensity and, or sometimes becomes non-existent in people. In some cases, it persists and increases, and those are severe cases, but they're quite rare.
0: Oh, okay. Um, so at eight years old, what prompted your parents to having to diagnose you for Tourette syndrome? Were they specific signs like uh, symptoms or anything like that, that they've noticed to be something abnormal?
1: Yeah. So a lot of uh, facial tics. I would have, uh, you know, tics like maybe making a face like that or, you know, sticking my tongue out in a certain way. And so it just got to the point where my parents were concerned and, you know, they might, you know, initially they thought it was a bad habit. And they said, it's not a bad habit. I can't stop. Um, You know, it, it took a while for my parents to come to terms with that. It's not like they believed me. Uh, you know, right up front. And it was very tricky. You're talking in the, you know, early 90s, right? It's not, we don't have the same amount of information or acceptance of, you know, mental health or, you know, neurodevelopmental concerns, right? So when we went to physicians, I probably saw four different doctors until, you know, I saw a pediatric neurologist. She's like, oh, you have this within like a minute. (laughs) Whereas all the other people, it could be this, you're stressed, you have high blood pressure, like weird, weird kinds of things. Um, but then you know, a specific expert was able to diagnose it you know right away. and it was really nice because we had an answer, you know, what what is this mysterious thing? but also for me and my comfort level, it was uh, pretty validating, right? so it's like I'm not making this up. it's not just a bad habit. there's there's something going on. Now that didn't mean you know it you take a pill and it goes away and stuff like that, but it was nice to have an answer, right to know what you're dealing with and you know, I learned more and more about it too, and realized that, well, it doesn't actually, you know, hurt you in any way. Um, It's just, uh, you know, it's going to be this this involuntary thing or semi-voluntary thing that I might have with me my whole life. And, you know, probably the biggest consequence is more about your self-concept, right? What do you think about yourself uh, when you have it? Do you think something's wrong with you? Do you think you're less capable? And also, you know, when you're a kid, like people make fun of you, or even as an adult, sometimes, you know, there are stories of my wife and I going to the grocery store and someone says, are you okay? Like you just made a fit. And I'm like, Oh, I have Tourette's syndrome. And you know, and they'll say, don't cuss at me. Ha ha. You know, something like that. And um, you know, I'm used to it now and I, I use it as an opportunity to educate people, but my wife gets pissed off, you know? But uh, so, cause you know, she didn't grow up around it and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's something that I've, you know, developed more comfort with over time. And I actually think it's been really nice to educate others and inform others. I've recorded, you know, YouTube videos on it where we get a bunch of questions about it and uh, it's really interesting now.
0: Well, your conversation is very fluid, which is something that is not a symptom of Tourette syndrome. Usually they're interrupted with, like you said, a cursing word or anything of that sort. So that's really interesting on how your symptoms are really mild compared to other spectrum of Tourette syndrome. Um, There was a story, actually, I'm not sure if you uh, ever heard of it, uh, Doc, the girl in Australia uh, who had Tourette syndrome, she was 13 years old. I'm going to give you or send you the information, but that was super severe, and she okay. was cursing and she was hitting other people as well as a reflex kind of like you know extending the arm but she was sure. hurt someone whatever it is sure and then they use some kind of like neurons or like a, a kind of like a shock system into the brain to yep. kind of like um simmer down those uh, uh turret syndrome attacks but then after that there was other complications where they had to remove the electric shock uh, in her brain. Um, but they were, like you said, there were studies about it. And now she's s- somewhat functional. Okay. But uh, compared to what she was before and it's through growth, it through like uh, getting older that her sim- her symptom subsided a little bit, but nothing compared to you. You seem like, if you would have not told me that you had a tumor, I would have not known.
1: Yeah. Was- yeah. Again, it, it was- shows up differently in different people. Yeah. And, and even, you know, The vocal tics that you just described of, you know, interrupting mid-sentence or yelling something mid-sentence, that's actually not super common. You know, so I've been been in rooms where I've been asked to speak at the Tourette Association of America and stuff like that. Even there where, you know, all the people, all the kids have Tourette syndrome, the people who will make a sound like that or interrupt mid-sentence, it's actually quite rare. Um, And so the, and you know, it's one of those things, well, why did that girl in Australia make the news or why was there a movie about her? Because it was an extreme, you know, you don't just, um, you don't make a movie about someone with mild depression. No, You make a a movie about someone with severe depression or severe suicidality, right? right? And so it's always important to remember, you know, why is this person being discussed? Probably because it's an outlier, but yes, in severe cases, you know, that are very treatment resistant. Uh, you see, you know, you see that kind of thing where there are essentially, um, they use electricity and, you know, mild electric waves to, you know, in the brain to stimulate certain areas to, you know, impact how much someone is experiencing tics.
0: Um, you said something interesting that once you were diagnosed, that, that made you feel a bit validated and made you feel like, okay, now we know what the problem is. But then at the same time, that has impacted your self-esteem as saying that, okay, now there's something wrong with me. How do I fix it or how do I manage it?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's any different from, you know, another condition. You know, I I would imagine, you know, someone who's experiencing depression, if they're having a hard time, you know, getting things done in their life, getting up in them or whatever the case might be. It's not very fun to hear. God, just like get over it, or you need to get more motivated or just snap out of it. You know, that's not fun to hear. Uh, if you're someone who's experiencing depression or anxiety, stop, why are you worrying about this? Not a thing. You know, that's not very helpful uh, mm-hmm. when you tell someone with an internalizing disorder, things like that. It's the same thing with stress syndrome in the sense that it's like, just stop it. Like it's a bad habit. What are people going to think of you? If you keep it going, it doesn't feel good because you know, you can't stop. Right. And so having uh, a label or a proper diagnosis just allows you to say, look, it's yeah, sure. Something's wrong with me in the sense that there's, there's something, you know, actually going on. It's not just a bad habit, but there's also something comforting and saying, Oh, you know, there, there's something here. There are treatment options. There are management. Now I know the prognosis. I know the course of the condition. I know it's likely to happen over time. So you actually have a game plan rather than having a billion question marks. And so for me, You know, it was, it was kind of weird. I mean, my initial thing was relief, like, see dad, like there's a doctor who's saying this thing, it's real. And I wasn't making it up. And, you know, that was my initial thing. It was just pretty satisfying to get a diagnosis about this. Now, over time, I understood, you know, it might go up over time and, you know, subside later. But of course, as a kid, you know, during your adolescent years in high school, not a fun time to, you know, have those symptoms increase. So there were certainly days where I was, you know, made fun of and all this kind of stuff. Or if I wanted to ask someone out and if I got turned down, I wonder, you know, is it because I have Tourette syndrome and all these kinds of stuff? And, you know, these are questions that you ask yourself uh, when you have Tourette syndrome. But. I also, I also realized that there was an opportunity pretty young because I'm not sure about the exact percentage, but it's, it's non-trivial. It's somewhere between 50 and hundred percent of people. I think with Tourette syndrome don't go to college or, you know, don't get a college degree or something like that. And, you know, there, there are studies of, you know, people with Tourette syndrome and there are no differences in intelligence, right? So it's not like people with Tourette syndrome are, are cognitively less capable than other people. Okay. Right. Um, And I think, but I, so that got me curious because it's like, well, what is it then it's probably their own self-belief or the, the social ramifications, right? They're tired of being in public places where people are looking at them or making fun of them and things like this. And so I thought, well, I'm still doing well in school. I'm still, you know, I still have friends. I play on the basketball team and do all these kinds of things. And, you know, I can get into a good college and what have you. And so I just saw that as an opportunity of, it's not just for me, if I do well, I think I can inspire other people or educate other people that you too can do X, Y, and Z. So sometimes, you know, I'll hear someone say, well, I have this, it's not the same. You don't know. I'm like, no, I do know. Um, And, you know, you, you have to recognize that, Hey, like, you know, I was dealt these cards, but I decide, you know, what my ceiling is. And so taking ownership of that, rather than seeing it as an excuse for not achieving things, I think is a very powerful you know, message for some people to hear because we, we all have to, you know, I wasn't born with a silver spoon. I grew up in this kind of neighborhood. My parents are from this kind of place. I have this condition and all these kinds of things, but at some point you have to decide, you know, which, which excuses and which, you know, things, which stories in your life are you telling yourself that's guiding your behavior and how are you going to change that? You know, I grew up with two immigrant parents who came here, I think literally with less than a thousand dollars in their pocket and they worked their way up. And, you know, we grew up solidly middle-class in a very questionable neighborhood in Los Angeles and uh, all these kinds of things. And it wasn't easy, but it wasn't impossible either, right. To figure it out. And so I just want people to recognize what are some of the stories that they're telling themselves that's keeping them from where they want to be. Right. And that's very true in, in, you know, in life in general, and certainly in you know, in a therapy setting where, where you practice too, Doctor Dan.
0: Well, wow, that's very very interesting perspective you got there, Doc. I mean, this certainly will let our listener know that despite their challenges and hurdles that you face or that anyone's face, you could overcome them, and it should not because you have Tourette or you have anything else that will supposedly hinder your progress. Sure. You the complete opposite, which this in itself, Doc. Kudos to you, my friend, honestly. Thank you. Um, you have done a lot that a lot of people probably would never even imagine that it was capable. You were able to still have good grades. You were still able to um, go and do your doctor degree in, uh, in clinical psychology, et cetera. Now, um, in your practice, do you primarily focus on people who have Tourette because you have, you, you're more, I would say, inclined to understand their problems, or you cover every kind of uh, illnesses?
1: Yeah. So current, you know, I don't, we're recording this in December, 2021. Um, I'm no longer in clinical practice, right? So when I saw patients, I would specialize mostly in kids and um, yeah, it was certainly behavioral conditions like a Tourette syndrome or an ADHD. And I would also see people with, you know, anxiety disorders and depression. I have a lot of training in OCD. Um, But my, my work now focuses entirely on college and medical school admissions, especially medical school admissions. And we do certainly get students who have, you know, various mental health conditions and or, you know, disabilities and stuff like that. And we have an expertise in helping them tell their stories through their applications. But at the same time, we also work with students all over the board. Right. So we work with students who have a 3.9 and you know GPA and a 99th percentile score on the MCAT who want to get into the best medical schools we also work with people who you know have uh, maybe some sort of developmental disability and they're struggling in school and who have accommodations and really want to talk about their story and frame it in a very effective way for medical school admissions committees and everything in between so i think that You know, my experience going through the admissions process and assisting people and talking about my own Tourette syndrome on the way to getting scholarships and admissions and things like that really has given me the background to understand okay, what is compelling about someone's story? How do you frame it in the right way? If there are challenges, not only, you know, I get the question a lot should I talk about this, yes or no? I think that's a bad question most of the time. The better question is, if I were to talk about it, what's the best way to pull it off? What does this say about me? What qualities can I communicate? And getting to know folks at that level, um, I mean, has has just been tremendous for our student success.
0: Wow. Interesting. Um, so if, let's say, from the time that you were diagnosed at eight, eight years old till now, Have your symptoms been or have your tics been similar? Have they gone down? Have they gone up? In in any case, I mean, I know, like you said, there's different uh, spectrum of the Tourette syndrome, but in your case, was it linear in terms of the symptoms or did they go up or down throughout your journey?
1: Yeah, it was probably linear between, you know, age eight, eight, nine, all the way till let's call it 16. Okay. And, and so, you know, they would get a little more frequent, a little bit more intense. Um, they were never, they never crossed, crossed over into severe, And you know, I would say they sort of peaked at moderate symptoms. Um, I rarely had vocal tics. And if I did, it was, you know, a simple sound like a, you know, something like that. Um, but then the, the motor tics, you know, I still have them today, maybe a little shoulder shrug or, you know, something where I flex my wrist or or something like that, or make a little grimace. But when I was in, in adolescence, it would be a little bit more like, you know, a head tilt or, you know, like something like that, a head jerk or, or something of that nature. Um, so it sort of went up to that point and then it slowly started to subside. So it was, little less in college and, and less so in adulthood to, to the point now where people who know me, they say, I don't even notice it anymore. Maybe it's just, you know, the same way they're like, oh, you have curly hair. Oh, you, you do that thing. And I don't think twice, <laughs> twice about it, unless you, you point it out. So it's also about developing relationships, right. And people who um you trust and are comfortable with. um But also, you know, you give it power or don't give it power, right? So if you, if you talk about it a lot or all these kinds of things, I only talk about it if it's I think if it comes up, if it's appropriate in that context, or if somebody asks me about it, but usually I'm sure there are a lot of people who don't ask me about it, who wonder, and maybe ask someone, Hey, have you noticed he does that thing? And they, I don't don't even know what happens in the background, but you know, it's sort of, I don't remember, I don't remember much of life without it. Right. So it's just part of my daily experience.
0: Are people with Tourette's syndrome more prone to seizures?
1: Interesting question. Um, So I don't, Uh, That's not a, an expertise of mine, you know, the comorbidity of, of seizures with Tourette syndrome, there might be, you know, certain areas of the brain that might be co-implicated and, and perhaps, but it's not something that I have the expertise to answer.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I was just just wondering if yourself, you have experienced any seizures in your life due to Tourette syndrome? Not that I know. Not that you know. Okay, <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs>
1: yeah, I haven't experienced any seizures that I know, let alone you know, yeah. whether they're attributable to threats or not. You know, so, um, so for me, no seizures.
0: Okay, okay, that's good. At least uh, you're staying healthy. Now, um, do you feel that physical fitness? I mean, I know that you said that you were doing basketball, etc., that you wanted to go to the NBA, but since uh, that didn't happen, did you continue, uh, doing uh any like any sports or anything like that? And do you feel that the sport in itself allowed you? To be able to um, reduce any of those tics or those symptoms of Tourette.
1: Yeah, so it's pretty interesting when you're when you're really engaged with something, you know, whether it's playing basketball or video games, your tics go down, mm-hmm. right? And so sometimes people say, "Oh, I just think," you know. It's a habit or whatever, because look, my kid stops when they're doing X, Y, and Z, but when you're really focused on something. So with ticks, it's interesting. They're described as involuntary. I don't like that word for ticks personally. I think they're semi-voluntary. You know, you're doing them. You feel the urge when it comes. Now you do it so often, it becomes sort of second nature. But if you said to me, don't do anything for 10 seconds, I can do that. You know, I can sit here and, you know, control that now it'll, it'll feel like a buildup of that urge. So after the 10 seconds, I'm like, Ooh, okay, I want to do this to feel yeah. relief, but I can, I can do that, you know, for, for short bursts. And certainly if I'm really locked in and I'm playing basketball or something like that, then, then I won't do them. Um, but as far as me and, you know, my experience in high school. So yeah, I, in high school, I ran cross country. Uh, I played basketball, both at the varsity level and, and in college, I would play more recreationally. Now I don't get to, I don't get to play as much basketball. You know, I have a a wife and a three-year-old son and a business and all these different things that keep me busy. Um, but I still, I take at least a 30 minute walk every day. Um, I lift weights about four times a week. Um, and, and otherwise, you know, if I can go on a hike and something like that, I do it. And I, I think I'm a stereotypical San Diegan in that way. Sometimes people visit from out of town and they say, everyone here is so fit. I'm like, well, you know it's what you do here. You know, you go outdoors, you do all this stuff. Um, and so it's pretty fun that way. But, but yeah, I, I find that it's just, you know, it allows me to be more sharp uh, in general. And also, you know, I know that if I've, if I've been eating a little more poorly as of late or exercising a little bit less or sleeping less, I just don't feel good. I feel a little bit, you know, flabby <clears> <throat> and slow and those kinds of things. And um, so it's always nice for me to stay sharp.
0: That's beautiful. Now you said that you uh, you stopped your practice of clinical psychology. How long have you been in it? And do you feel that the the the, the new like the new business that you have for helping a medical students to get into college? Do you feel that that was an easier transition to from clinical psychology to what you're doing now? Or why did you stop pursuing um, that uh, that sector? I would say that business.
1: Yeah. So. You know, after graduating from my PhD program, I was seeing patients on the side, and the work that I was primarily doing was building psychological tests. So my expertise is in you know diagnostics and developing tests to diagnose people and all this kind of stuff. And actually, even before I graduated from my PhD program, I was helping people with the admissions process. Uh, you know, some earlier on, it was you know friends and cousins and. Cousin's friend and all these kinds of things, and it was purely word of mouth. But it was towards you know the end of grad school where you know this business was formed uh, in the in the way that it exists today. So I was I was doing it on the side. So it wasn't an abrupt thing where I was seeing patients or doing psychology work. It stopped, and then the next day I started working on admissions. I've been working on admissions for a long, long time, okay. and it just you know the like I said, my level of interest was sort of growing in not only admissions, but also in entrepreneurship and helping people in that way and helping them become doctors, because it's insanely difficult in our country to become a physician. And, you know, our students were demonstrating an exceptional track record. So I said, well, there's something here, you know, we're doing a good job. People are finding value. They're referring. I started writing about it online. There were, there was, there were random people coming to us now. So it was a pretty smooth transition from that standpoint, right? From a from a purely business standpoint, it's not. It wasn't abrupt and all those kinds of startup issues. Now that doesn't mean it wasn't an anxiety inducing experience, right? When you, I'm sure a lot of people who, you know, have worked uh, in a job with a salary and all these things, when they decide that okay, I'm actually going to go into my own thing. Pretty scary experience, you know. Is it gonna work? Was it a fluke? What if, you know, I don't. I'm not. I'm gonna give up my benefits through my company and all this kind of stuff. We have a market, you know, all the stuff that people uh, worry about, and, and that was very real for me. You know, I, you know, we had a we had a son. You know, I have a family. You know, we have rent and all these kinds of things, and so that was a that was a tough break to make, sort of just, you know, mentally, right, and emotionally. Um, But I realized that I can, when I did it, there was a really nice benefit of giving your full self to it, right? Because I think, so starting something on the side is really nice because you can test the water, see if you really like it before going, you know, all in, but at the same time, are you giving it your all, right? And so at some point you got to make a decision, assuming your careers, you know, the the work you're doing uh, on a, on an employment basis is really fulfilling, but also this sort of side work you're doing or the side business you have, you know, that's also really fulfilling. At some point, you're probably going to have to make a decision if you want to be as good as you can be. And you have to you have to be fair to yourself and the two things that you're pursuing, right? You have to give yourself fully or, or otherwise you're going to lower your ceiling in both of them. So for me, it just came to, to that realization point. And I want to be, you know, at home more and have a more flexible schedule for my family and also be able to to build this, you know, organization to serve more and more people, and so that's when I um, made the decision to, you know, go into it full time.
0: Beautiful. Now uh, you've been in it for like you said two years around, one or two. Years? No,
1: no, uh, full time for for years now. But been, you know, been doing this work for for over fifteen years, for the better part of two decades, helping people with the admissions process.
0: Okay, and now um, the, for the admission process part, so you, you basically help the student write their essay, you help them uh, formulate the plan on which university to go and apply to based on their, on their uh, grades, or what exactly, what is your role on how to take a student from graduating college to applying for medical school?
1: Sure. I mean, we start way earlier than that even. So we have students who are between college and, uh, sorry, high school and college who come to us even as early as the summer before freshman year of college. And we develop, you know, a four-year course plan, what courses to take, what to major in, um, what extracurriculars to do, you know, how to get enough physician shadowing and patient exposure experiences And, you know, what research to do, helping them to secure those things, you know, assisting them in finding and securing those opportunities. And then over time, we also help them with MCAT prep. So people who aren't familiar with the MCAT, it's like the ACT or the SAT, but for medical school admissions, the same way. Yeah. The GMAT for business school. Yeah. So that's the MCAT. It's for medical school. So we do tutoring with that on a comprehensive basis. And then when the application comes around, uh, you know, this is when we get into some of the areas that you just brought up about. How do you decide which schools to apply to based not only on your stats, so your GPA and your test scores, but also your fit with different programs, what they offer and what you've demonstrated through your resume. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, it's pretty complicated as far as, you know, what state of residence you're applying from, because there are some schools that will be more or less okay with, you know, uh, people from your state. You know, if you're applying to an in-state public school, you're going to have higher odds and things like this. So it gets pretty complicated very quickly. Uh, But in addition to that, yes, we assist with, you know, brainstorming, outlining, and editing all essays. So choosing the right topic, uh, building the right outline, you know, editing the essays however many times we need to make sure that it's in final form. We provide interview coaching. uh, We provide, you know, update letters. So if someone's on a wait list, how to get off the wait list. So it's a very comprehensive service, uh, you know, from A to Z with the med school admissions process.
0: And how long does it usually take? You said that you take them from when they fin- when they're about to finish high school, like grade uh, 11 in, uh, high school, um, do this process like a two, three, four year program that you, uh, allowed them yeah. be or, or until they are accepted.
1: Yeah. So we do help students for four years, uh, up to four years. Right. So someone can come to me right before their applications, you know, a couple of months before it's due and, that's more of a one-year relationship because you're guiding them through the whole application cycle. But other people who come at the beginning of college, yeah, it's a four-year relationship. So you wow. really get to know these people. <laughs> we get to know families. I've sent, you know, I've sent cards to families. I've received gifts from families. I, uh, when they get in, you know, I, I sometimes I'm able to, you know, call parents and personally congratulate. And it, it's kind of weird, you know, wow. I've been called, I've been called, a, uh, you know, someone's, uncle, almost like an honorary uncle, you know, in in different languages. And it's just, it's just such a treat. You know, it's a very, it's a very difficult process. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very anxiety inducing. So with college in our country, we're fortunate to live in a country where there are so many colleges, chances are you can get into one if you want. Whereas with medical school, it's not like that. It's if you will get in somewhere, not where you will get in. And so there are a lot of hopes and dreams on the line, right? Parents hoping that their kid does a certain job. You know, these students wanting to become a physician and some of these people without our support would would have not gotten in or some people who got in would have not gotten into the caliber of school they got into with our support. So I I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility uh, through this whole process. And it's a treat to do it.
0: So um, for our listeners, how if someone or if any parents that are listening to this podcast, they want to be able to get in touch with you, Dr. Shirag. Um, where can they go and uh, which kind of like social media platform do you use to promote your services?
1: Yeah, sure. So I have a bit of a tricky last name, not very different from you, uh, Doctor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I'm sure you'll link to it in show notes. But our website, um, ShemasianConsulting.com, or just type Shemasian in Google, S H E M M A S S I A N. And, you know, there are contact forms that you, where you can clearly get in touch with us. We also have a very active YouTube channel where we publish something new every week, whether it's a, an MCAT passage walkthrough or something related to medical school admissions or what have you. And you can, you know, write in the comments there, but contact that shamasandconsulting.com is, is our email address. Please reach out there. Happy to assist with um, anything you need admissions related.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Uh, That is all the time that we have for today's podcast. I really do appreciate you, Doctor, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to join us. Thank you again for participating and inspiring our many listeners with your incredible story. Now, we hope that you have all enjoyed today's episode. I'm very excited about the many upcoming guests that we have scheduled for season three of the Happiness Journey podcast filled with inspirational stories, just like the one that you listened to today. Now, here are a few concluding words of wisdom. The will to win the desire to succeed, the urge to reach your full potential. These are the keys that will unlock the door of personal excellence. Oh, and one more thing to remember. Success doesn't happen overnight. It's when every day you get a little better than the day before. It will all add up. And before you know it, you will be the next one that everyone will hear about. No need to waste your energy in trying to tell others about how you will succeed. Let your actions show it. Trust me, they will learn quickly about who you are. My name is Dr. Dan Amzeleg, and you may all keep pursuing your amazing journey in life.